Well, good evening. Thanks for being here as we look at our roots now. Obviously, we're a Baptist church, but before we're Baptists, we are Protestants. Even though many maybe don't know that or maybe don't resonate with that fact, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian of the previous century, said, today we live in the land of Protestantism without the Reformation. And I think he's right. And so we're here. There's a couple reasons for tonight. Uh, it's always good to have an excuse to get together. And so we have one in the fact that Tuesday will be the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so we'll celebrate this because the Reformation was about the church being reformed in light of Scripture. And that's always a good thing when we're sent back to Scripture. But another reason is that I'm burdened as a pastor about the lack of awareness of just how significant it was then and actually still is. So a few, few years ago, uh, Christianity Today did a study about Protestant self-awareness. And I want to share some of the results. They're not encouraging to a pastor. But so they, brought, they polled a whole lot of people and uh, Protestants and they asked, they asked several questions that had to do with the Reformation. And one was uh, the results show that 52%, about half, 52% of American Protestants said that faith plus good deeds are needed to get to heaven. Faith plus works. Half of Protestants agreed with that statement. About the same, another half said that we need Scripture plus tradition. We need tradition to supplement the Bible for our walk with Christ. When asked what it meant to be Protestant, about a third simply said, not Catholic. (laughs) That's true, but I want Southside to have a little better answer than that. Only three out of ten said they believe both in faith alone and Scripture alone. We'll say more about what that means, but just know that that means that three out of ten aren't recognizably Protestant, if only three of ten believe that. So tonight, I want to look, here's what we're going to do tonight. It'll be a little bit longer than normal, and we're going to look just briefly at Martin Luther and his journey from Rome, and then we're going to look at the foundational principles of the Reformation, the five solas or the five alones as they've become to be known. But before we look at Luther, and we're going to celebrate Luther, you all already know that I'm a big Luther fan. I need you to know Luther was a very fallen man, just like all the Protestant reformers are fallen men, just like all people are fallen. But Luther was absolutely a sinner, and he had some serious sin issues. One of of the ways you can see this is if you look at my garage, I've got a few pictures. And so I've got Pistol Pete, and I've got Jordan, and then I've got Calvin and Luther, Protestant reformers, but then I've got a a picture of this Anabaptist guy named Dirk Willems, and Luther and Calvin had a strong disdain for the Anabaptists, and I think they're wrong about that. One of my heroes, many of my heroes are Anabaptists. Well, Luther and Calvin really did not like the Anabaptists. I think they were wrong about that, so certainly don't agree with everything that they said. Luther was a rough man. He was rough around the edges. In fact, he himself said, indiscretion is my greatest fault. And it doesn't take long to see that. He would cuss at the devil. He would pass gas to drive the devil away. (laughs) He would receive hate mail, and he would use the hate mail as toilet paper. He drank a lot of German beer. His wife ran their private brewery at home. And he could be very harsh with his opponents, overly harsh. In fact, later in life, he didn't start this way, but later in life, he wrote some just terrible ungodly things about the German peasants, but also about the Jewish people. He started out optimistic, and then he said some very hateful anti-Semitic things later in his life. So he was extremely fallen, far from perfect. And also, it wasn't just Luther. We could talk about a lot of people. Even before Luther, we could talk about John Wycliffe, John Huss, 
It was many movements. It wasn't one movement. We could talk about Zwingli. We could talk about Tyndale or Calvin or Cramner or John Knox, one of my son's namesakes. So it wasn't just about Luther, but Luther did have a unique courage about him and just a confidence in the word of God. So that's why I want to focus. Also, the sake of time, I don't want to keep here all night. We're just going to focus on Luther tonight. He was born in 1483. On November 10th, he was the oldest of eight siblings, and he was sharp. He was a sharp sibling, and so his his dad in particular wanted him to go to law school, probably so that his dad himself would be taken care of as he got older uh, in life. So he wanted a man who would make some money, so he sent him off to law school, and he goes and one day he's coming back to his house from, from law school, and he's traveling by horse, and there comes a terrible thunderstorm. And lightning strikes right near the horse. The horse rears up, and he falls off, and he is scared to death. And he, like a good Catholic boy, prays to St. Anne, the mother of Mary, who was the patron saint of minors. Well, Luther's dad was a minor, so he prayed, St. Anne, save me. If you rescue me, I'll become a monk. Well, he made it home. And he made good on his promise. So Luther, who was in law school, becomes a monk. And he joins a monastery and becomes an Augustinian monk, which was one of the strictest orders of monks. And much to his father's chagrin, he dives right in. And Luther was gifted with an extremely sensitive conscience. And so he was constantly confessing his sins to his supervisor. And in their theology... Sin wouldn't be forgiven if it wasn't confessed. And so Luther is constantly going to his supervisor, confessing sin after sin after sin. So much so that at one point his supervisor says, you know what, you need to go and come back when you have something worth confessing. Finally, he's fed up with Luther's constant confession, and he sends him off to be a Bible professor. (laughs) That's what you do. When men start to go mad, you make them a college professor. (laughs) Luther was 26. But in order to be a professor, you had to master not really the Bible, but this book called The Sentences. It was a book of theology by Peter Lombard, not a very good book, but the book is full of Augustine, and Augustine is much more faithful to Paul than Peter was, and so Luther begins to get a sense of Augustine and through Augustine, the writings of the Apostle Paul. So he's sent off to be... A professor, but letting Luther loose on scripture would be a move that Rome would soon regret. He's made a teacher at the University of Wittenberg, a city that was a proud host of some 19,000 relics. Now, if you're not familiar with Roman Catholic theology, a relic is this item that you could visit and venerate, and you could shave years off of purgatory. Purgatory, if you're not familiar with purgatory, is this place that was made up by Catholic teachers, and it's kind of a go-between between this life and heaven. And so if you're a believer, you have this life, then you go to purgatory from anywhere from a 1,000 to millions of years where you're purged, you're punished for your sin until you're made pure enough then to enter the pearly gates. So you could go visit these relics, and you could shave years off your time of punishment in purgatory. And so Wittenberg, where Luther taught, was surrounded by these relics. Let me just tell you some of them. Included a piece of straw from the crib of Jesus. And so you'd visit it and you'd collect. You wouldn't worship it, you would venerate it. They made a distinction that I don't think really translated to the common people. But you would look at this crib, this hay, and you would shave years off of purgatory. There was a strand of the beard of Jesus in Wittenberg. There was a nail from his cross. There was a crumb from the Last Supper. There was a twig from Moses' burning bush. There was some of Mary's hair. There were tons of teeth and bones. And if you would venerate each piece in Wittenberg, you could get 1,900,000 years shaved off your time in purgatory. 
So Wittenberg was popular. It was a place to go. And Luther asked, you know what, if the Pope has the authority to shave some 1,900,000 years off of purgatory, if we will venerate these supposed relics, why doesn't he just do it for everybody out of love? It was a good question. Well, Luther has many questions, but one of the things that really gets him fired up is the whole practice of indulgences. An indulgence was the remission of sin granted by the Pope. And Luther saw his people, he was a pastoral heart, he saw his people trusting in these pieces of paper rather than in Christ. If you bought one, again, you could shave years off your time in purgatory. Or just 50 years prior to the time of Luther, the church changed it to where now you could also shave years off your loved one's time in purgatory. So if you've got the money, hey, buy your indulgence and you can spend less time in purgatory. Or you can, you can free your mom and dad who are suffering now in purgatory if you'll just sow a seed to the church's ministry. Well, there was this very famous salesman of indulgences named John Tetzel that really sent Luther over the deep end. In some ways, we can credit the Reformation for John Tetzel. You should also know that about this time, the Roman Catholic Church needed lots of money, and they needed about $2 billion to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. It's convenient, huh? It's actually brilliant, if not manipulative, way to raise funds. Take the universal human experience of guilt and say that the Pope, the superstitious belief that the Pope has authority to forgive sins, and if you have the money, we can fix that problem. We can fix your guilt because the Pope will forgive. And, of course, the church gets the money it needs to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica and commission people like Michelangelo to Saint paint the Sistine Chap- uh, Chapel, ceiling, etc., etc., etc. So theology meets fundraising, and, again, the people didn't have a clue. They didn't have a Bible in their language. It was only in Latin, and most people didn't know Latin. A lot of the priests didn't even know Latin, so they didn't know any better. So the leaders of the church would say, if you want your sins forgiven, buy this indulgence. They didn't know any better, though, so, of course, they did. And Tesla would come along, and he was a rhetorical mastermind, but he was extremely manipulative. He would go to churches, and he would go to the Mass, and he would go to various places, and he would, he would put his ear on the ground and say, I can hear your dead mother and father wailing for them, for, to you, if you would only spare some change and relieve their suffering in purgatory. He would say things like, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Or place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. And he would say, don't you hear the wailing voices of your dead parents? You can save them with just a small offering. You don't even have to confess your sins. Just buy this indulgence. You'll be forgiven of anything, even raping the mother of God, Tetzel said. As you can imagine, this got, this got Luther fired up. Meanwhile, Luther's studying the Bible, and he takes a visit to Rome in 1510. Rome, the holy city, and he goes, and he is just... He is just disillusioned, one, with the immorality among the leadership of the church, but also just with the superstition. So he goes and he visits the sacred steps, which were supposedly transferred from Jerusalem to Rome, the steps that Jesus was on. And if you would crawl up on them with your knees, you'd get a certain amount of years shaved off purgatory. So Luther, as a good Catholic, participates. And he's looking around and he gets to the top and he stands up and he just says, who knows if this is true? He's starting to study the Bible, and he's not seeing anything, and he's seeing corrupt leadership, and he's seeing superstition, and something is not right. And so he needs to take action. 
He sees the abuse of the indulgences, and so he takes his 95 theses, his 95 statements, and nails them to the church door at Wittenberg, which was really just, it was common practice. It was like a church bulletin board, really, and he wasn't trying to overturn the church at Rome. In fact, at this time, 1517, he was very much still Roman Catholic. He just was asking, hey, let's talk about these things, which focused primarily on indulgences. So he nails them up, and the the preface says, out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. Again, that was 500 years ago Tuesday, October 31st, 1517. And in God's sweet providence, Johannes Gutenberg had recently invented the printing press. The first printed publication was actually a papal indulgence, ironically, but soon the printing press had made a way for Luther's ideas, as we would say today, to go viral. They get copied and copied and copied, and they are everywhere. And then the next year, in 1518, Luther then is summoned to appear before a diet, a council, in the city of Augsburg to answer charges of heresy. And the heresy is questioning Catholic dogma. That's something you just did not do. And so they summon Luther there. And just 100 years prior to that, John Huss was actually burned at the stake for doing the exact same thing, questioning papal authority. And Luther sides himself with John Huss. In the eyes of the leadership, that is then siding with a heretic. And so he's condemned. He's excommunicated from the church in 1521. And keep in mind that at this time, you could not be saved apart from the Roman Catholic Church. So for the Pope to say that Luther is excommunicated means you are damned. You are no longer saved. So Pope Leo X sends his papal bull, the seal, and Luther receives it, the paper, and he burns it publicly. (laughs) Not the wisest idea, but Luther sometimes lacked wisdom. So now he's in trouble, but he continues to study the Bible. And again, he's still within the Roman Catholic world, but as he's studying the Bible, he's beginning to see more and more. And he has now, for the first time in many, many years, a Greek New Testament in front of him, thanks to the work of Desiderius Erasmus, who produced the first edition in 1516. Notice, he did the nails in 1517. Again, you see God's providence here, sending Luther back to the original sources, bringing a printing press so now that these ideas can be spread abroad. His major breakthrough didn't come until two years after the nailing of the 95 Theses. He'd been teaching. He'd been teaching the Bible. And if those of you who teach know, you learn best by teaching. And he had taught on Psalms. He had taught on Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And there was this one phrase in Romans chapter 1 that he just got hung up on. And it says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Luther, being Catholic, thought this meant God's judging righteousness. And so he saw it as this righteousness by which God will judge him. And he hated it. He even says that. I hated this word, the righteousness of God. But notice what he says. I love this phrase. He says, I raised with fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately on Paul at that place. I wonder if we do that with the Bible. There would have been no Reformation. Probably today there would be no Reformation because of our short attention spans. But Paul is beating on Paul at Romans 1.17. Tell me what you mean. Ardently, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. 
then he realized that this righteousness of God in Romans 1.17 is not the judging righteousness of God. It's the saving righteousness of God. God does require perfection, but that's not what that verse is saying. And so as he studied that verse in its own context in the original language, he began to see that it's not the righteousness that God requires. It's the righteousness that God gives as a gift through faith. And then, then Luther says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. And so Luther realizes that the Bible teaches justification by faith. We are given the gift of righteousness through faith. And more famously then, Luther, after he's teaching this and publishing like crazy, he's forced to appear at the Diet of Worms, which was overseen by Charles V, on April 17, 1521, and he was to be examined yet again. And they had a pile of his books. He had written about 30 books in just about three years. And basically, they asked two questions. Number one, are these your books? Number two, do you recant? And in, in Luther's less, well, less, less known speech, he says, can I have a day to think about it? And he thinks about it because he realizes at this time it is Luther against the world. And he knew, again, that John Huss, 100 years ago, had been burned at the stake for questioning Catholic dogma. So he takes a day and he prays and he comes back and replies, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will give an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God help me. Now it's on like it's on. If it wasn't on before, now it's on. Well, thankfully he had a buddy in a political leadership, Elector Frederick the Wise. And he has Luther kidnapped and sent and hidden in a castle in, in Wartburg in Eisenach where Luther just digs into the Bible. In fact, he translated it into German. He did the New Testament in just four months, and it was published on August 21st, 1522, and 5,000 copies sold in the first two months. For the first time in hundreds of years, the common folk had a Bible they could read in their own language. He did the Old Testament 12 years later, and the German Bible, of all we could say about Luther, the German Bible was probably his noblest achievement. Well, as Luther's ideas are going viral, they make their way to a convent of nuns. And so they're reading Luther and reading about the freedom of Christ and reading about the fact that they don't have to be nuns, they're convinced. And so they're snuck out of this convent in fish barrels. <laughs> There's 12 of them that are freed from the convent and they marry them off to various people. And again, remember before this, priests couldn't marry. Well, now seeing that in scripture, there is no biblical basis for clerical celibacy. Now they can get married. And so here, here are these nuns, they need husbands. So they married them off all except one. They couldn't marry off one. So finally Luther says, you know what? Maybe I should marry her. Katie Von Bora. He said he married to please his father who wanted grandkids, tease the Pope, and vex the devil. (laughs) He hoped his marriage would make the angels laugh and the devils weep, and he called marriage the school of character. And one of my favorite things about Luther that we don't have time for tonight is actually his teaching on marriage. They had a wonderful marriage, and he called it the school of character. They had six kids together. And his teaching on marriage in many ways transformed the German culture of marriage. And then he dies in 1546 
in his 60s, and his last words were, we are beggars, this is true. And he kept repeating John 3.16. So the question I want to ask was, Luther writes, are we still protesting? Well, as we'll see, yes, but first I want to mention a few commonalities. There are several important commonalities between Roman Catholics and Protestants, just to name a few. The Trinity, they believe in the Trinity. They believe that God is one. They believe that God is the creator. They believe that God is personal. They believe in the person of Jesus Christ as fully God, fully man. They believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. They believe in humans made in the image of God. They believe in the fall of mankind. They believe in the resurrection, the second coming, the reality of final judgment. These are no small things. These are, these are not small things at all when it comes to Christian doctrine. In fact, where we are now, there might be more in common that we hold with Roman Catholics than with liberal Protestants who seek to deny certain parts of Scripture or distort or redefine historic Christian doctrines. But there are significant differences between Rome and Protestantism that I want to focus our time on. And they're probably best summarized by what we call the five solas, the five alones. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and glory of God alone. And these are rich truths. They summarize a lot of the Bible. They get at the heart of the gospel. I love these truths so much so that about 11 years ago when we had our reception over here in the fellowship hall, I had the five solas on my groom's cake. And we're just going to cover them just real briefly tonight. I want to give a plug, though. We're going to be looking at more in depth in these uh, starting Wednesday as we look at the five solos for five weeks. So if you want to take that study, you can sign up over here in the Welcome Center. So what are they? Again, Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. This is the first one, and this is the main one, because really our main differences with Rome are on the issue of authority. For Protestants, the Bible alone is the ultimate source of authority. Sadly, though, many even Protestants, again, have have drifted from this. Many Protestants are in need of reform today. There are many Protestants that no longer believe in the authority of Scripture. They believe in the authority of feelings or their own reason, what's reasonable to them, or their experience, or therapeutic technique, or marketing strategies, or entertainment values, or pragmatic principles. But historic Protestants, and that's what we are here at Southside, deliberate Protestants believe that the Word of God written is the final authority ultimately. Not the Pope, not church tradition. Notice I said ultimate. We believe that God has put in place other structures and sources of authority. The state, church elders, church history, tradition, parents, teachers, those are sources of authority, but not the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority is the Word of God. It is the norming norm, and it's sufficient. When we say Scripture alone, what we're really saying is Scripture is sufficient. When we say Christ alone, what we really mean is Christ is sufficient. All one must believe to be a faithful Christian is found in Scripture and in no other source. Rome believes that authority is found in Scripture and tradition. It's the ends where we really differ. They're on the same level. So the church at Rome and what the leadership says is the authority. Let me give you an example. Pope Boniface said this in his writing called Unum Sanctum. He said, consequently, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. It is necessary to be saved. You have to submit to the Pope. Again, that's historic Catholic doctrine. The catechism, which is still used today, says that the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. They just said it's not Scripture alone. 
both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reference. reverence. We flatly reject that statement. It's Scripture above all. And of course, when you have tradition on the same authority, you have all sorts of wacky beliefs. Most of the main tenets of Catholic doctrine have zero biblical basis. For example, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the fact that she had no original sin. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. That was made up in the mid-1800s. Or her perpetual virginity, the fact that she always remained a virgin. Well, Scripture says Jesus had brothers and sisters. Just recently, in the 1950s, the church decided that Mary never saw the grave. She was ascended bodily. The celibacy of the priesthood, the fact that priests couldn't marry. Well, Peter, who was supposedly the first pope, had a wife, remember? We hear of his mother-in-law in the book of Acts. They make up different kinds of sins, mortal and venial, again, not found in Scripture. Or transubstantiation, their belief that the bread and the, and the wine literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. As the priest says, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body, which, by the way, is where we get the word hocus pocus. Hocus corpus meum, hocus pocus. The idea of purgatory has no biblical basis. Again, the belief that Christ did not fully atone for sin. You've got to atone for your own sin once you die. Again, it might be a thousand years. For some of you saintly ones, it might be a million years. But Christ didn't finish it. You've got to be purged of your own sin until you're made fit for heaven. And then the teaching on indulgences, the remission of sin so you'll spend less time in purgatory, the treasury of merit. Again, as as I mentioned in Luther's day, you could buy these indulgences, making it much better for the rich than for the poor, which is the opposite of what our Lord taught. Just a few years ago, the Pope tweeted out that if you followed him, you would actually uh, be granted indulgences. I'm not joking. Follow the Pope. You get an indulgence. Follow him on Twitter. But for Protestants, if it's not found in Holy Scripture, it's not to be believed. If it's not found in Scripture, it's not to be believed. Here's how Luther put it. No Christian believer can be forced beyond Holy Holy Scripture. In another place, he says, What is asserted without the Scriptures may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. And so on Scripture, Luther said, I stand, I sit, I stay, I glory, I triumph. Many places in Scripture could be appealed to. Let me just read one, though. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is Scripture. That can't be said of tradition. Scripture is from God. It is God-breathed, and it alone is to be our authority. And God works through his word alone, and Luther knew that. Luther believed that. That's why he had such a high view of it. It's through the word that God works. And so that when he was asked, how did the Reformation come about, here's how he answered. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, again, he was Luther and not Baptist. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So scripture and scripture alone is our final authority. And it's, of course, from scripture alone that we derive the other four solas, the second of which is Christ alone. 
Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Haven't we seen this? Have you been here on Sunday mornings week after week after week? Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus, period. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, I've done my part, now I need you to add a little bit. It's Jesus plus nothing equals all we need. He said, it is finished. And Protestants love that phrase. The finished work of Christ. There's a whole lot of theology in that phrase. The author of Hebrews regularly speaks of the once-for-all sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Luther said, the cross alone is our theology. Christ is all we need. He needs no supplementation and certainly no replacement. And that's what Catholics teach. The, The Pope is the vicar of Christ. Vicar from vicarious, meaning in the place of. So the Pope stands in the place of Christ. And the Pope has the authority over the church that Christ has over the church. Well, we flatly reject that as well. The priest stands before the congregation as the person of Christ. But in the New Testament, we're all priests. There's no need to confess sin to a human priest. We have access. We're all priests. All the old covenant priests pointing forward to Jesus. Again, Hebrews puts it so clearly. He says about Jesus, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. When he offered up himself. That's Hebrews 7. A few chapters later in Hebrews 10, we read this. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The reason he sits down is because his work is done. He sits down at the right hand of God by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's Christ alone. It's not Christ and Mary. Catholics will elevate Mary to the same level as Christ. Let me read to you a a prayer that's a common prayer in terms of Catholic piety to Mary. O mother of perpetual help, thou art the dispenser of all the good which God grants to us miserable sinners. Mary is the dispenser of all good which God gives. There's nothing like that in the Bible. The prayer continues. Obtain for me then the pardon of my sins from Mary. Obtain for me the love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O mother of perpetual help. Friends, nowhere are we told to pray to Mary. Mary was a wonderful woman of faith, but she was a sinner just like us. She's not free from original sin. She's not perpetually virgin. She's not ascended, and she's certainly not a co-redeemer. That's the language they use of Mary. She's a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. No, Christ alone. He's all we need. We don't need the intercession of the saints. We're all saints in the Bible. We have his intercession. It's all we need. He ever lives to make intercession for us. We don't need Christ plus relics. We don't need Christ plus purgatory. We don't need to purge our own sin. Jesus paid it all. Full atonement can it be. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. There is no purgatory. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will see me in paradise. Not, you're going to go suffer for thousands of years, and then you'll see me. He says, today. So it's Christ alone. One one has summarized Luther's theology in two steps. One, trust Christ. Two, see number one. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So it's Christ alone. And faith alone. 
And faith alone is really what gets to the heart of the Reformation. This is what made the Reformation. In fact, Calvin, another Protestant reformer, said this. He says this, faith alone, just, which is shorthand for justification by faith alone, this is the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. This is the heart of it because it gets at the heart of what the gospel is. So Luther says about this, nothing in this article of justification by faith alone can be given up or compromised. Even if heaven and earth, things temporal should be destroyed, this is the article on which the church stands or falls. In other words, this is the defining doctrine of the church. I think he's right here. So what is it? This, this important doctrine, Calvin said it's the principal hinge upon which all true religion turns. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It happens all over Paul's letters in particular. To be forgiven of sins, to be credited with the righteousness of Christ. It is a declaration. It is not a process. Justification is about our status before God, not what God does within us. We're declared righteous, justified, not on the basis of the process of becoming better, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ. It is not to be made righteous, it is to be declared righteous. And Protestants historically have guarded this truth by never separating but distinguishing justification from sanctification. Justification is a one-time declaration. When we trust Christ, you are forgiven all sins, present, past, and future. Then the process of sanctification begins, and we will have this process for the rest of our lives until the resurrection of the dead. Justification is a one-time declaration that we're right with God. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming like Christ. Justification is declared righteous. Sanctification is being made righteous. Justification is a position before God. Sanctification is our practice. Justification is immediate. Sanctification is a process. They confuse justification and sanctification. Here's how Pope John Paul put it in the Catechism. He says, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. But again, this just flat contradicts what the Bible teaches. In the Bible, justification is a declarative statement. It's a law court image forgiven, declared in the rights. Justification can't be lost. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The opposite of justification is condemnation. Which leads to assurance, which for us is blessed, right? We sing about it, blessed assurance. But for Rome, assurance is a bad thing. In fact, let me read one of their theologians, Ludwig Ott. He says, the reason for the uncertainty of the state of grace, whether or not we can know we're really saved, he says, it lies in this, that without a special revelation, nobody can with certainty of faith know whether or not he has fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for achieving justification. So we'll never know, right? Because justification is a process. How do we know if we're really justified? Maybe we lost it. Maybe we had certain sins. We don't know. Well, that is the reason they think that to say that we have assurance that we're saved is presumptuous. It it would be if we thought that our assurance and our confidence was based upon us. It would be presumptuous, but it's not. That's not where our confidence lies, is it? Our confidence lies in the cross, in the finished work of Christ's. So we believe that justification is by faith alone. Rome teaches that it's by faith plus works, faith plus penance, faith plus baptism, 
Faith plus being part of the Roman Catholic Church. Historically, the Catholic Church said to be saved, you have to be part of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Vatican II is kind of confusing because it softens the language and actually contradicts most of Catholic history. But for most of it, we have been seen as apostate, as unbelievers, because we're not part of the true church. And most Catholics don't know this. Most Catholics also don't know that they, by being Catholic, believe that we as Protestants are damned, accursed. Let me read to you from one of the ecumenical councils, the Council of Trent, which was after the Reformation, so it was a response to the Reformers. They're describing us here. They say, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, I believe that, I hope you believe that, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, works, and that it's not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So if you have the audacity to believe that you are justified by faith and faith alone and you don't have to contribute your own works, Rome says, let you be damned cursed anathema. This is usually where I go when I'm trying to talk about the gospel with Catholics because like, oh, I, don't, I don't believe that. I'm like, yeah, you do. If you're Catholic, you believe this. They have to. By definition, Catholics believe the teaching of the Council of Trent. They don't have an option. Let me read one more. That was Canon 9. Let me read Canon 30. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged, either in this world or in purgatory, before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. In other words, if you don't believe in purgatory, you're damned according to the teaching of the Catholic Church. No small thing. Let's look at a couple of passages. Let me just read a couple. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them. This is where the language of Trent comes from, and it's ironic because Paul's teaching the exact opposite. Galatians 1, Galatians, a lot of it's about justification. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Notice for Paul, it's, the authority is not bound up in men or even in angels. Paul says, hey, if I'm here preaching and I start preaching a different gospel or if an angel flies down from heaven and starts adding works to the gospel, let him be accursed. It's not the man, it's the message that is the authority. He keeps going though. He says, As we have said before, so now I say again, in case you didn't hear me later, repeat myself. If anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Then he gives us a definition of that gospel. And I want you to notice, he's going to say the same thing three different ways in Galatians 2.16. Let's see if we can improve on his clarity. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that clear? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. (laughs) Same thing three times. It's just so crystal clear. Let me read one more from Romans chapter 4. 
Romans 4, 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's how Luther put it. He's not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. You see, God donates what he demands. This is the heart of the gospel. God does require perfection. Total righteousness. None of us can get there. But we don't have purgatory to try to get there. No, we're given the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. And so when we trust in Christ, sin's forgiven, perfection granted. The reformers spoke of an alien righteousness, not meaning it was from out of space, but it was outside of us. This righteousness that we're given as a gift. As Paul says in Philippians 3.9, we want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what distinguishes Protestantism from Roman Catholicism. In fact, this is what distinguishes Protestantism from every other religion. As Tim Keller puts it, every other religion, Rome included, says, you do your work, therefore God will accept you. The operating principle is you do your work, therefore God will accept you. Protestant Christianity says we're accepted by faith in Jesus Christ, therefore we do our works. And that is, the, that is an important distinction for your own joy. Joy is at stake. The Reformation was about joy. It was about freedom. Comfort is at stake. Assurance is at stake. Hope is at stake because we're going to continue in sin in this life. We will continue to battle sin as we saw this morning. And every time we sin, we create a reason to doubt God's acceptance of us, don't we? And the question is, when that happens, not if, but when, where will we turn? Our own penance and performance or the finished work of Christ? Where your debt was paid. So faith alone is really at the heart of the gospel, which is why we sing about it all the time. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found clothed in his righteousness alone. Not our own, but his faultless to stand before the throne. Not in need of purging for thousands of years. Faultless before the throne because we're clothed in his righteousness. Or Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I, nothing good have I, whereby his grace to claim. We'll wash our garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Now complete in him. Not partial. Complete in him. My robe, his righteousness Close, sheltered neath his side, I am divinely blessed. Or as we just sang, how deep the Father's love. We will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, no works, no relics, no indulgence. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Or... Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing. Nothing can for sin atone. These songs are just full of the five solas. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Christ alone. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, these are Protestant truths. You take away the Protestant Reformation, we ain't got nothing to sing about. Grace alone, which of course is just a natural outflow from faith alone. We deserve nothing but condemnation, punishment for our sins, but by grace we receive forgiveness. Grace is unmerited. Rome teaches it's grace plus good works. Your good works must cooperate with grace to merit eternal life. Well, you don't find that in the Bible. Grace doesn't come through nature. It doesn't come through the water of baptism. It doesn't come through the oil of confirmation. It doesn't come through the bread or the wine. It comes through Christ. So Rome adds works to grace, and when you do that, you don't have grace. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 11. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Or in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if it were up to me, then Christ died for no purpose. And then glory to God alone, which of course flows from the other four. If it's human tradition plus what God has said, humans get some glory. If it's Christ plus other things, whether it's Mary or Pope or priest, then they get some glory. If it's faith plus works, then we get some glory. If it's God's grace plus our merit, we get some glory. But if it's only what God has said, only faith in what God has done through Christ, then God and God alone gets all the glory. And he has arranged this world in such a way that he does get all the glory. There is zero room for human boasting. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So is the Reformation over? Short answer is no. Long answer, absolutely no. We're still protesting. And to our contemporary culture, this all seems petty. To contemporary culture, to talk about the definitions of words just all seems like such a waste and so petty. And sadly, even in the church, there's a disdain for doctrinal precision. But brothers and sisters, this is the stuff of life. These are the most important truths in the world. How can we know God? What will happen when I die? How can I know what will happen when I die? Am I saved by me? How much of me? How good do I have to be? My performance or the performance of the perfect son of God who died in my place and grants me the gift of righteousness. These are the most important matters in the world. The Reformation still matters. Scripture alone declares that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone.